Welcome to the Disney View Podcast. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer. He's a one-time cast member, and he's been to Disney World literally hundreds of times. Listen in as he talks about one of his favorite things, the Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando, and occasionally beyond the Orlando theme park. And now, here's your host. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, today's edition of the podcast is really to catch you up on all of the happenings around the Walt Disney Company and around, in particular, Walt Disney World. There's been a lot of stuff happening, and uh, I wanted to try and catch up on all of that. So this new segment is really for the middle of February 2013, and since we haven't done a news segment in a while, I thought it would be a great opportunity to try and pick up some of the pieces and fill in some of the gaps on things that have been going around. So, let's start with the uh, Star Wars franchise. As you may recall, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, well, okay, it wasn't that long ago, and it was in the same galaxy, Disney acquired Lucasfilm, Lock, Stock, and Barrel. And Disney almost immediately announced that they were going to continue the idea of George Lucas's concept of putting a TV show out there. And so they'd like to produce a regularly scheduled TV show that'll be broadcast, oh, hopefully starting in the next year or so. They've also talked about picking up some other live-action films to fill in some of the gaps from the other Star Wars storylines, and uh, they've started work on the seventh installment of the Star Wars franchise. And J.J. Abrams is going to direct it, which I find kind of amusing, because J.J. Abrams is also directing the Star Trek lines, lineage, and those are actually you know very different in their scope and some of the things they do. Of course, they're both science, fi- science fiction and fantasy, and they, and they involve um, starships traveling around uh, the universe. But it's a completely different franchise, and I'll be curious to see what he does with this one. Now, what I find interesting about this is that when George Lucas had originally introduced the uh, Star Wars franchise, he talked about the episodes 4, 5, and 6 really being the middle three franchise. So the original movie that came out in 1977 would have been the fourth movie in, this, in the franchise. And then, of course, The Empire Strikes Back was five, and uh, The Return of the Jedi was number six. And then he created the first three films more recently. He had originally planned on doing three sequels uh, after set after The Return of the Jedi, and really this film seven that J.J. Uh, Abrams is working on is that film. And I understand that George Lucas will stay involved with the entirety of the production, so there's some consultative work going on, so at least his, in, his input gets in there. So I find that kind of interesting. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what they put out in all of these different Star Wars universe, uh, given that they have all these different ideas. And now turning inside the Walt Disney World Resort, each of the four theme parks in downtown Disney are getting a Starbucks, as we've talked about. And uh, the Main Street Bakery is the location for the Starbucks in the Magic Kingdom. Now... I'm a big history buff in terms of what the Magic Kingdom is and is supposed to be. And, you know, having a Starbucks along Main Street just kind of rubs me a little bit odd. Now, I like Starbucks. I really do. But Starbucks, to me, is about the experience. It's not about the coffee. Their coffee's good, don't get me wrong, and I enjoy it, but it's really about the experience. You're paying for the experience in the store. You're paying for the atmosphere. You're paying for the ambiance. You're paying for the baristas. You're paying for all of that stuff. That's, that's the benefit of going to Starbucks as opposed to going to another coffee chain. And I don't see how that adds anything to the Walt Disney World or any of the Disney parks when you go in and you go into a Starbucks. The atmosphere, I, I'm not sure how they build it to make it the same and really give you that one-up experience, 
other than just going into like the Main Street Bakery and getting a cup of coffee. So I will be curious to see what they do there and if they keep any of the original uh, Main Street sweets or any things they had there, or if they only sell Starbucks-themed merchandise and, you know, their, their uh, bakery goods. It's kind of an interesting thing, and I'm still not sure what I think about it. Don't get me wrong. I, I love Starbucks, and I'm glad it's there. I'm just not quite sure yet how it fits in, but maybe it'll fit in beautifully. I'm not entirely sure. You're probably well aware that the new test track opened. Uh, it opened the same day as Fantasyland opened, so it kind of got buried in the news a little bit. The new test track kind of takes a new bent on the on the experience that you had with the uh, test track when it first opened. They've kind of redesigned it a little bit and focused it around one particular car line, and you go along and uh, you have the, uh, the same kind of test track experience where you design your car and then you get to ride in it. I'm going to have to do a whole retrospective on the entirety of what Test Track is now and what it used to be when it was World of Motion and when it was Test Track in the middle, so stay tuned for that on a future podcast. Of course, one of the key things that happened, I just mentioned a moment ago, was the opening of Fantasyland, and uh, most of the rides and attractions and shows are there now and open, and uh, the one problem there's been is that there hasn't been the success that the Disney company was hoping, hoping for. Uh, there was an article by Al Lutz over at Mice Chat that I thought was kind of interesting, and I wanted to read apart from that. Over the Christmas break, a fire was lit under a few key Burbank executives when it was realized that Walt Disney World's new Fantasyland project wasn't pulling in the numbers or customer satisfaction ratings that it had been hoped for. Walt Disney World's hotel occupancy and spending numbers had been hurting for several years, and they were hoping for a big bump from the new Fantasyland and its lone new attraction, a clone of the Little Mermaid Omnimover. New Fantasyland hasn't given them the bump they needed, and the customer satisfaction results are showing that it won't be driving new attendance or spending gains that the Walt Disney World Resort really needs over the next few years. And there's currently nothing under construction in Walt Disney World, while their Universal and SeaWorld competitors have major new projects coming out of the ground. If only to prove how quickly things can change in the Disney empire, Walt Disney Imagineering execs returned from their Christmas break to quickly huddle and then directed their teams to figure out how to clone as much of the Cars land as possible so that it could open in Disney's Hollywood Studios as quickly as possible, aiming for a late 2015 debut, nearly three years to, to the day after the new Fantasyland officially reopened. The executives were also told to stop value engineering the projects into smaller footprint with fewer offerings and let Imagineering do their work. And since the James Cameron alliance that was supposed to bring Avatar Land to the Walt Disney World Resort in the same time frame is going nowhere fast, and may not even showing up at a theme park at all at this point, Walt Disney Imagineering is thrilled to dig in and start real work on an accelerated plan to bring Cars Land to Florida. The result will be a Cars Land that has just about everything the DCA version does, with a few filler buildings omitted and the very expensive Luigi's Flying Tires ride missing entirely. The very deep basement beneath Luigi's needed for the giant fans and motors that resembles the generator room at the Hoover Dam would be extremely difficult to build in the swampy Orlando soil and raise the costs even higher. But even without Luigi's, if the frenzied pace on the project continues in Glendale, there's a good chance they'll make it to that Thanksgiving 2015 opening date, if not just slip into a little bit of the winter of 2016. So long as Walt Disney World's numbers don't go from bad to worse this spring, the Disney Hollywood Studios Cars Land project should make the trip to Florida mostly intact. So, a couple of things going on there. <laughs> One is, hey, there's Cars Land coming to the Walt Disney World Resort, and I think that's been pretty well confirmed at this point. There was some discussion about where it's actually going to be located, and it appears as though it's going to replace the Lights, Cameras, Motor Car show back in the back part of the studio. 
Now, there was some discussion about potentially building a monster's ride and maybe a roller coaster back there, but I think that seems unlikely. That's much more of a dream. And I think the Cars Land is much more likely to come in, and I've heard several different reports besides Al's report that have kind of gone along with that. So I'm kind of curious to see where this all nets out. I'd really love to see a Cars Land, and, well, if it, if it can bump up attendance for me, all the better. Now, you also heard in there about Avatar. And uh, there's some discussion about Avatar. One of the problems with it is um, there are creative differences, as I understand it, between James Cameron and Disney's Imagineering development team. So the project has been put temporarily on hold. Now, there was also a discussion about where exactly the Avatar land would exist. There was talk for a period of time earlier in 2012 that it might actually go over to Camp Mini Mickey instead of going over to Rafiki's Planet Watch. And there was a lot of back and forth about whether it might actually wind up there. And as a result of all this on hold and the discussions that have been going on, apparently Disney pulled some permits to actually put Fast Pass Plus stations over by the Festival of the Lion King, kind of proving once and for all that the Lion King show is not going anywhere for now. So over in Camp Mini Mickey, the Festival of the Lion King will stay there, at least for the foreseeable future. Now, it's entirely possible that all of this could change, but I think there's a lot more drama happening behind the scenes, and anything could change at this point. Hey, Henry, what's holding you up? Let's get on with the show. We can't hang around here all day. One other change that was made over at the Walt Disney World Resort, the Country Bears show, the Country Bear Jamboree, was shortened by a little bit. Uh, what they did is they took out a couple of songs. In particular, they took out the Pretty Little Devilish Mary and the Fractured Folk Song. And I love the Fractured Folk Song, and I'm really kind of disappointed that they put it, took it out. In fact, I'm going to play it for you right now. What do you think we have you on the show for? Now, Wendell. You're supposed to pick. Now, Wendell, please. Eh, if you can't cut it, just lay out. Well, let's not fight now because we got work to do here. Well, let's do it. Now, here's a fractured folk song. Butchered by two birds. Yeah, we wrote these lousy lyrics. And we also wrote the words. The chords are very simple. In fact, there's only three... First it's G, then C, and D, and then going back to G. But you got to be quick. So now the show is about uh, 11 minutes long. It used to be about 16 minutes long. Now, one thing that I've heard tell about with the uh, Country Bear Jamboree is they didn't quite sync up the changes to the show to all of the changes in the animatronics. There's some quirky little things that happen, and you know some of the scenes don't match up with what they're talking about. I'll be curious to go and see that myself because I'd like to see how that kind of plays out. It seems like to me that would be kind of funny. Knowing the show as well as I do, I'd, I'd really like to see that. Now, also something else that I mentioned a moment ago when I was talking about uh, Al Lutz's article is that there are several groundbreaking things that are going on over at the uh, Universal Studios and over at SeaWorld. They're making some headway into making changes that are uh, very uh, guest-friendly to bring more people into the parks. One of the things that's going on is the uh, Lord of the Rings is potentially 
going over to the Universal Studios. Well, and I say potentially because there's a lot of uh, legal battles happening behind the scenes. Several different groups have claimed ownership of the rights to be able to develop the property. And so there's a, uh, there's a court battle that's brewing about who gets to develop it. And uh, Universal has some, some play in this, and I think Disney owns some stake in it as well. So there, we'll see where that one nets out, but uh, I think Universal will wind up building it at the end of the day. A couple of other little things that are happening. Over in the Magic Kingdom, there's a uh, subtle change that's happening over in Fantasyland on one end where the Skyway Station used to be. So there was stroller parking there more recently, and it's at the end between where you have uh, the Peter Pan flight and It's a Small World just before you turn and head over to Liberty Square. There's an area there where uh, where the stroller parking used to be right at the end, and what they've done is they built a uh, tower there that's supposed to be Rapunzel's tower. And I suppose they're going to have Rapunzel meet and greet there. The only problem with it is, and it's really just a small problem, when you're over by the Haunted Mansion, you can see the tower from the Haunted Mansion, from the queue of the Haunted Mansion. And that seems a little odd because it doesn't really fit in thematically with that. And usually Disney is pretty good about landscaping and doing some things to hide things from view. And perhaps they will and they just haven't gotten to it yet. But that's something else that they've added to Fantasyland. And, of course, um, with the changes to all of the Disney Junior shows that are uh, ongoing on the Disney Channel, the Disney Junior show over at the uh, Hollywood Studios has changed as well. There's a whole new theme to it to kind of match up with all of the things that are happening on Disney Junior. So now it's current again with all of of your favorite uh, Disney Junior friends. It should be more or less the same type of show, just more up-to-date with what's happening on the Disney Channel. Now, you may have heard something about this, but uh, Disney had created a dragon, and it's sort of this um, simulated dragon that they were able to display in the sky and actually have fly around in different places. And there were some YouTube videos and some very clever things they did to try to promote it, where there was a dragon flying around outside of the Walt Disney World property, right on the edges of it, and then uh, flying around the castle in the Magic Kingdom. And it's a very cool piece of technology, and I I think that Disney is leading up to something, but I don't know what yet. It may be just a whole new... Um, element to some of the some of the fireworks shows that they do, but it's a really cool thing that looks like there's an actual dragon flying around, and uh, I'll have to put a link to uh, the YouTube video in my show notes. But it's really pretty cool. And speaking of different shows, over at the Swan and Dolphin Hotels, they are doing a new light show there uh, every evening. It's not really on a par with what they have at Epcot or what's over at the Magic Kingdom, but it is certainly something to behold, and it's kind of a fun thing to see. And I imagine that they'll develop it more over time in that uh, boardwalkish area to try and draw more guests over there in the evenings. We've also heard that the Spectrum Magic Parade will not be returning to the Magic Kingdom anytime soon. They're going to continue to use the Electric uh, Light Parade for a while longer and uh, retool the Spectrum Magic Parade and perhaps bring it back at a future time under a different name. So it looks like that's the end of Spectrum Magic, and um, I'm kind of sad to see that go. That was uh, I still think that that was a better parade than the Main Street Electrical Parade, but that's just me, and maybe I have a little bit of fondness and affinity for it because of the amount of time I spent working there while that parade was going on, but uh, I'm really not sure. And speaking of things ending... Uh, Kodak, of course, has uh, filed for bankruptcy and is going out of business, so Kodak no longer has a sponsorship with Disney. So there are no more Kodak photo spots, there's no more Kodak film on sale, there's no more Kodak affiliation. You know, if you have any park maps that's still around with, let's say, Kodak on the back of them, that's kind of a collector's item because Kodak is no more. And it's kind of an odd thing, you know, because I always thought of Kodak and Disney having that very strong par- partnership for years and years and years. It's going to be hard to kind of think about Kodak not being around anymore. 
A couple of other little things happening around the uh, resort, uh, Splitsville, the uh, high-end but retro bowling alley uh, that replaced the Virgin Megastore in downtown Disney is now open. It's been open for a couple of months, and I will have to check it out on a future visit just to see what it's like and uh, kind of check it out. They have a dining menu as well, so that seems like it'd be pretty cool to kind of try out and do some bowling and uh, have a little fun in an evening when I uh, don't have much going on. And also the AMC movie theater that's there in where Pleasure Island used to be. Uh, has um, been rethemed as a fork and screen. Uh, AMC has several of the fork and screen theaters around, and that's actually where you can sit and eat a meal while you're watching your movie. Also, sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, it's just fun to kind of hang out and just eat a movie, and I understand they have some gourmet food there. So uh, another thing to check out on a future uh, experience. And speaking of experiences, there's a new pirate-themed experience that they've added to the Magic Kingdom. Um, in addition to the uh, Sorcerer's in addition to the Sorcerers of the Magic Kingdom, they've now added this Pirates experience where you go around and uh, do some pirate-related things, mainly over in the uh, Adventureland area, but it kind of fills in some of the gaps, especially for boys who might be a little more interested in the pirate experience, maybe not so interested in Fantasyland, maybe not so interested in the Sorcerers of the Magic Kingdom, but want to do some pirate-themed things. The Treasure of the Seven Seas is what this is going to be called. Disney officials said guests will use a pirate map and a magic talisman to help them complete five different pirate raids throughout Adventureland. The goal of the quest is to help locate different treasures of the seven seas and fight off the pirate enemies like the Royal Navy and Captain Barbosa. If guests help Captain Jack succeed in all his missions, they'll be welcomed in as part of his crew. But if not, they'll face the wrath of the cruel sea alone. Now, more details will be released later. It sounds like it's going to be some fun. Hey, and here's something interesting. If you're a Phineas and Ferb fan, uh, Subway now has a Phineas and Ferb lunch bag available if you purchase a kid's meal. So uh, if you want to get one of those, and they do look pretty cool, you might want to head over to Subway and get one. They'll have them for a little bit longer. I think they're there until April 14th, so you have an opportunity to go and check them out. But hey, what's wrong with a Phineas and Ferb lunch box, right? Now, there's some interesting things happening outside of the world that I wanted to bring up. Um, one of the first ones is to talk about Tony Baxter retiring. Now, Tony Baxter is an Imagineer who's been with the company for a long time now. He's one of the second generation of Imagineers that's, uh, that's been with the company. And uh, it's really kind of interesting and sad to see that, uh, that he's retiring. But he's been with the company for 47 years. So, uh, you know, I imagine it's time to, uh, to move on. I'm going to have to do another podcast at some point about uh, Imagineers and some of the history and some of these guys who work there and tell some more stories about these guys um, because they're really interesting guys. And some of them, uh, like Tony, you know, he started off as an ice cream scooper and worked his way into Imagineering and became one of the uh, people who really uh, was behind a lot of the attractions like Big Thunder Mountain Railroad and uh, Journey into Imagination and the Indiana Jones Adventure and so on and so on and so on. So really kind of an interesting guy, and uh, sorry to see him stepping down uh, from the Walt Disney Company, but certainly understand after 47 years with the company, and we wish him well. There's a rumor floating around that Disney is in the market to buy the Scripps Network. Now, the Scripps Network owns the Food Channel, the Travel Channel, the Do-It-Yourself Network, and so forth. Apparently, uh, Disney has made an overture to, ma to purchase them, but the uh, deal hasn't been consummated yet for various reasons. But they're still looking to complete this purchase sometime this year. Uh, and I find that really interesting. Disney would become the media empire that it really wants to be and would own all of these properties uh, that would allow them to do more things. There's a lot of tie-ins already between the Travel Channel and Disney and even the Do-It-Yourself Network. 
I find it kind of interesting that they would consider purchasing all of this uh, Scripps Network property uh, to bring it under the Disney uh, umbrella. Um, and I'll be curious to see where that all goes, too. And speaking of movie companies, there was a company that was called Digital Domain. And uh, Digital Domain was a company that did special effects for movies, like the movie Transformers and Titanic. And what they did was they did a lot of the uh, special effects for these movies. And they also created some movies in 3D. Now, Digital Domain itself has some interesting history to it. It's a company that was founded back, um, I think it was about six or seven years ago. And it was a company that was uh, brought into Florida, and they, uh, they got a lot of state money to be able to, to build this, uh, this property and have all these, uh, this portfolio of movies that they were doing. And unfortunately, they went out of business last year. And so when they filed for bankruptcy, all of their technology was sold off. Well, what happened was that they sold off some of the, um, some of the technology to convert films to 3D. Now, Disney was using this company to do some of the work on, its, on some of its movies. And so they had some interesting relationships there. And it claims, Disney that is, claims that they had the right to use the technology because of agreements with the patent holder that originally created the patent to do some of the technological work on the films. So they included the movies like Alice in Wonderland, G-Force, and Tron Legacy. But what happened was when the company went into bankruptcy, they sold all the patents off. So the 3D movies could be made by anyone based on the fact, anyone who had bought the patent based on the fact that they purchased the patent. So Disney actually asked a federal judge to block the bankruptcy court filing uh, to uh, stop the sale of the patents for 3D movies. Disney, of course, was fearful that a decision could mean that it will not have the ability to convert its movies into 3D. So that's still held up in court, but I find that kind of interesting because Disney is trying to create all of its 2D movies into 3D to kind of redistribute them and have a whole new uh, avenue of uh, income and great, create some new interest in their movies. But the uh, technology um, may move on without them, and I find the whole thing kind of interesting. Sometimes the way these things work is, is kind of fascinating to me. And finally today, I'd like to talk about a, di a movie that was made at Walt Disney World without Walt Disney World's permission or understanding about the movie being made. So what happened was there was a movie co that's called Escape from Tomorrow, and it became the most buzzed about movie at the Sundance Film Festival from director Randall Moore. He presented Disney World as a dystopian hellscape and uses it as a backdrop for a descendant into madness. Jim White is on holiday with his wife and two children when he learns he's been fired from his job. As he reels from that news, his mental state progressively worsens as he and his family navigate the park. It's entirely shot in black and white, and Disney's attractions become nightmarish specters as perceived by White's unstable mind. They wanted to avoid being caught filming a movie, so they actually took some fairly high-end personal-type equipment into the park. So it was, you know, these cameras that are handheld cameras that anyone might be using, and they walked around with those, and they had put microphones on all of the, um, the actors, and they walked around and they just filmed them as though they were a family film, you know, somebody filming a family. It really was kind of an interesting take on what they did. Now, the uh, director said that it's shooting in such a stealthy fashion was scary and it was exciting and fun. Now, why did he make the movie? He says it's heavily influenced by various strange outings I endured as a boy with my father, who at the time lived in Orlando, Florida. Escape from Tomorrow is my personal attempt to make sense of what felt like a very artificial childhood, brought on by our cultural obsession with these fake manufacturer worlds of so-called so fantasy. I think the film is really about defining the word escape and how so many American households seek it out in a yearly pilgrimage to a materialistic mecca. He actually shot for 10 days in uh, the Walt Disney World Resort and then shot for another two weeks over in Anaheim and then used a soundstage in Los Angeles to kind of fill in some of the gaps for things. 
Now, they were almost at the end of the movie when they almost got caught. What happened was they were standing there filming at the entrance and watching people come in. And um, he had his actors, who were the uh, the family, coming in the park, and he was filming them coming in. And then he had he, he had them come in a second time and a third time. So they were exiting and coming right back through the turnstiles. And um, security kind of looked at that funny. Why does his family still keep coming in several times in a row? And why is somebody filming it? Well, the film crew, as soon as the security came out, the film crew dissipated and went into the crowd. But the actors had to stand there and try and come up with an, an explanation for why they had to come in. The, uh, the lead actor said he was acting for his life. So the uh, actors had to kind of uh, go into character and act and, just, and tell them why they had left the park and come back in. And what they said was they had to go back out to uh, reapply sunscreen and come back in, and they got away with it. And then the film was released at the Sundance Film Festival, and there's a lot of discussion about whether the film will ever see the light of day beyond that film festival, um, whether it will ever be distributed in the United States or what will happen with it. Disney, for its part, has stayed pretty quiet about the film to this point and uh, may come back and do something later, or perhaps not. We'll have to wait and see, but it's kind of one of those interesting stories, and uh, if you ever have a chance to see it, the movie is called uh, Escape from Tomorrow, and um, who knows? It may be, a, may be a cult classic or you know, have a following, or it may turn out to be a nothing at all. And I look forward to checking it out sometime just because of the surreptitious nature of how it was put together. I find that kind of intriguing on its, on its own. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and uh, I've caught you up with the news and you found some interesting things in here. And that's all I've got for this week. And remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. Show notes can be found on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. Looking to do some travel planning? Want to find an authorized Disney vacation planner? You should visit Destinations in Florida. Original music you hear in this podcast is courtesy of Sound On Music. You can find his music at ReverbNation.com slash A. Our thanks also go to Doug for his continued contributions to the show. You can find links to other great Disney podcasts, as well as the latest Twitter feed and the Disney Buzz on DisneyPodcast.net. And don't forget to check out Dave's iPhone apps. There's a Hidden Mickeys app for finding and sharing hidden Mickeys at all of the Disney parks around the world. There's also an app designed especially for pin traders. You can keep track of all your pins and your wish lists Please be generous with your time or a donation to Autism Speaks. We do hope that you've enjoyed your visit and that you drive home safely. Show number 129.